Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Gary Goldman is the tallest, funniest Jew I know. And I've known him personally since 2004 when he competed on seasons two and three of NBC's last comic standing. Goldman went to Boston College on a football scholarship, but found his goal line in stand-up comedy a few months after graduation. He has recorded three comedy albums and three-hour specials for TV consumption. His latest, the brilliant It's About Time, debuted this spring on Netflix. It's about time I sat down with Gary and shared more of his life story with you. So let's get to it! been recording for the last half hour <laughs> you know i've been i've been brushing up on my gary goldman interviews oh, there are a few of them yes and the one thing that that struck me was that you the story about me overturning the uh, money changing table at the temple <laughs> is uh overstated <laughs> overstated i uh i know that comes across in every interview that i overturn the money changing table and at the at the temple and um it was an homage rather than anything I was trying to start. I wasn't trying to start a religion or anything. Well, it, was, I, it was an homage to Jesus. I didn't want to make you rehash everything that you've already hashed. Right, right. So I don't want to hash that. So no. if, we could, if we could take off my, my part where I was a prodigal son or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. You you do have uh, an affinity for remembering dates. <laughs> yes. Though, which... <laughs> Well, there are like four dates in love. my there are four dates in my career that I need to remember or I, or I have remembered. And um, wait, do you feel you need to remember them or honor them uh, in some way? Yeah, in some way. Yeah, I think I think they were significant enough. So if you were if you were writing a history of yourself, you would be like, well, that was an important an important day to remember and, and commemorate. So um, yeah, every October eighth, I uh, commemorate my my first time on stage by trying to get on stage again. Well, that shouldn't be too hard to do. No, I'm, I'm good at getting on stage now. <laughs> yeah, back then it was you were lucky if you got on once a week. Uh, do you remember? The, I was. Do you remember the last uh, the last day that you played football um, with the pads? No, but it was it was April of 1993. It might have been April 25th, but I, I that doesn't sound right. It was it was April of 1993, not 1993, 1990, April of 1990. April. Yeah. Spring practice. Spring practice, yeah. Sp- the spring game. Okay. Yeah. Were you, uh, this was Boston College? Boston College, yeah. So it's what, maroon and gold? Yeah, it was the maroon and gold game, yeah. Hmm. What yeah. color were you, um, were you wearing for that game? I think game? I was wearing uh, white. <laughs> 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 I think I think we wore home versus road uniforms, mm-hmm. but the maroon right. and gold is actually the colors of the team, so I think they still call it the maroon and gold team, but I was actually... But the white is probably the away... The away team. The away yeah, team. the away game. Uniform. The road uniform, if you will. When you when you finished with that spring game, did you did you know that was going to be the last time you played football? Yeah, yeah. I went in on a Monday, and I and I told the coach I couldn't, um, I couldn't continue. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't cut out for it. <laughs> yeah. If if you had known that uh, that BC was going to hire Tom Coughlin, would that have changed your mind? Uh, no, no. <laughs> if I knew anything about Tom Coughlin's practices, then I definitely wouldn't have wouldn't have stayed on. That would have that would have really sealed it. But it was already sealed, so there was there was yeah. no chance that I would have come on and played for for Tom Coughlin, who was, um, yeah, pretty type A. 
Did you did you harbor any illusions that that you were going to be play football past um, then when you were younger? I harbored intentions. I intended to I intended to have a, a football career because I had done I had done pretty well in the one year that I had played in high school and and um, you know everybody built me up and everything and, and so I had yeah I had intentions of, of playing a few years in the NFL. <laughs> then, but then I came across guys who had been playing all their life and were big, as big and as strong and as fast as me, and um, those became, uh, yeah, illusions. And yeah, and, because you yeah. know BC's, you know, Division One. Yeah, yeah, tough they, flight they, school. they played a really, really good schedule. So yeah, yeah, it was it was obvious early on that I was not um, that I was not cut out to be a football star. <laughs> I yeah, I don't think I would have been as good a football player as I am a comedian. So that's that's something. Were you were you known in the locker room as a funny guy as a comic yes. relief? Yes, yes, that was the one thing I was known as as being a, a bit of a goofball and uh, witty. I was very witty with the coaches and the players and everything like that. So I I, I was um, wouldn't say I was beloved, but I was uh, <laughs> I was I was liked by a cross section of the um, of the of the locker room. Did you have a nickname? Uh, <laughs> Jew, no, um, no. <laughs> For a Catholic school, I that did, would that yeah, would yeah, yeah. that would fit. Uh, Gully, the Gull, Gullman. Yeah, mm. those were my nicknames. But um, yeah, that was. You know, we we actually have sort of have this in common uh, because you went to BC on a football scholarship, right? I went to Princeton not on a football scholarship, but I got in through a football slot. Really. Because Princeton, well, at the, this is 2016, and they're they're finally getting rid of the program called lightweight football, ah. which Princeton, Army, Navy, Rutgers, yeah. Cornell, a few other teams had this, where it's football but with a weight limit, like right. wrestling. Yeah, and was it under 200? Uh, at the t- when I was there, it was 158. Wow, 48, 48 hours before the game. That's way in 158. Well, now it was up in the 180s. Wow. But they had like four or five s- slots where they could, not scholarships, but they could request. They could go to admissions and go, these four or five guys, can you give them an extra look? Wow. And I was one of those four or five guys. That's great. Yeah. Um, but now here we are both in the comedy world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> deep, deep in the comedy world. Take that, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> you let us go to good schools with football and we turned it into comedy. Yeah. Um how how young were you when you first thought of comedy as a as not a fallback option but as a possible plan A? Uh, probably nineteen or twenty. I think nineteen or twenty. I started writing down these these uh, ideas that I had. N- none of them would ever reach the stage, but write down these ideas I had that were based on watching comedy and thinking, oh, that's how he that's how he does it. He talks about Madonna and he calls her some sort of. Um, uh, uh, a uh, wanton woman, and then, um, and then yeah, that, I'm, tr- I'm trying to. That was, was that was the early '90s. Yeah, that was Madonna jokes of the early '90s. Yeah, I, she put out that sex book, and yeah, she was she was very um, open about her sexuality, and mm-hmm. and so um, that was that was a good fodder for jokes, and and so I yeah I wrote down ideas and I did impressions of um, just all the Saturday Night Live characters. Basically, I did the the. the did the inventory of Saturday Night Live characters, so I, I really had no um, no uh, no basis on thinking that I could ever be a professional at this, and well, and and nothing I thought of resembles anything I do today. What was your best or or favorite SNL character to 
do an impersonation of an uh, impersonation. Pro- probably Billy Crystal, Sammy Davis Jr., <laughs> which is so simple and just um, really, really even then it was pretty dated. That over Fernando? Or? Uh, <laughs> Fernando Lamas, yes. Uh, I did Fernando as well. Um, well, you always have looked marvelous. Uh, I, I've, I've looked more marvelous uh, than I do now, but um, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that was how I, I started off, basically just ripping off Saturday Night Live characters and doing um, jokes I'd heard on television and whatnot. And Stephen Wright, I was a big Stephen Wright fan. I listened to him all the time and repeated his jokes to people as if they were mine. Did you know he was a local? Um, yeah, yeah. I always liked that at the beginning of the concert where they said, from Boston, Massachusetts. I really liked that. And then he said he was a parking attendant at Logan Airport and he parked jets. That was, <laughs> I mean, what a, what a great way to start off a set like that. Just you know exactly what you're getting with him. Did you know growing up that Boston was such a vibrant comedy community slash scene in the yeah in the eighties yeah. and early nineties? Sure, I knew I knew people and family members who had gone to see um, Lenny Clark and Steve Sweeney and Don Gavin and Paul D'Angelo and those guys, Tony V and I, I you know, Rich Seisler. I hate leaving anybody out because they're just uh, gods to me. So. Um, and they would just come home from these shows just uh, re- retelling the jokes and, and just uh, reeling from, from the shows that they saw and how, how great these guys did. And uh, I, would, I would love to, um, love to have experienced that. I did, I did actually go when I was 17 to see um, – or 16. I did go to see and I saw Steve, Steve Sweeney at the at Next Comedy Stop in Boston. So I started going pretty – pretty young to see comedians but at that point i i had no idea that that that, that was something that i could that i could do i still wanted to be a, a basketball star or you know an athlete of some kind but you went into the city you didn't you didn't go to any of the one-nighters that were happening in saugus no or... i would have never i would have never found those because i didn't read local newspapers or anything <laughs> like that now I don't, I don't know how anybody found comedy shows before the internet so how did you find the comedy um, show you into and yeah my, my friends must have um heard about it and then and then called it but also they advertised in the in the main main newspaper so you would you would be able to see the, the phone number and who was mm-hmm. coming to to perform in the in the newspaper every weekend wait you know there were two newspapers yeah there was the herald and the boston globe <laughs> yeah so what was the main newspaper my my friends probably their f- family probably got the globe so yeah <laughs> i i say that jokingly because i I worked at the Herald for. Oh, years. I remember. That's how, I think that's how we first met. Yeah. yeah. Well, I worked at the Herald, but then I also, but my parents were Globe subscribers, so. Oh. <laughs> kind of got to come and go. What? Actually, we met for the first time when you were on Last Comic Standing. Okay, in Arizona. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Yeah. But uh, so the first show you went to was at Nick's. Was that also how you ended up finding your first gig for yourself? Um. I just remember, you know, I'd, I'd always ask around what people did, and, and the answer was always you'd go to open mics, and I and I had heard of an open mic at Stitches in Boston, mm-hmm. and I signed up for that, and then they went out of business, <laughs> and I signed up for an open mic at Nick's Comedy Stop in Boston, and I heard over the years people saying, oh, open mic, open mic, we love going to open mics, you know, just uh, people who are fans of comedy would go to see these open mics, and I and I and I just thought from the time I was in college, I was like, well, I'm going to do that someday. That's how I'll get my I start doing these open mics, and I'll I'll stand out so much that, that I won't have to do them for very long. But it was years before I stopped doing them. But it, but was that October eighth? That October eighth, nineteen ninety three. That was my yeah. That was so that first. was just right out of college. That was uh, yeah. That was just a few yeah. months after graduation. Yeah, you, you went. Yeah, 
You were just a pup. I, I guess so. I mean, but you were a tall at, pup. But but at the, were, yeah, but at the time, I, I felt I was, I was, um, you know, uh, getting in at the. I remember thinking I might be a little bit too old to get into this now. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, a lot of the young comedians have been doing it for a couple of years. Guys like Dane Cook and Billy Burr and Patrice O'Neill. They've been doing it for Bobby Kelly. They've been doing it for a year and a half or, or two before I started. And so they, but they, they, were, they were already great. Because they all started like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, right? Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> it seems like that's how old they were when they started, but. You know, they may have had a year and a half or two years ahead of me, but they might as well have had four or five years because they were already so good. I mean, not not just good for young comedians. Mm-hmm. They were really good. Like, they probably – I mean, they're not as good as they are now, but they were really strong and just would, would own any show they were on, no matter who was on the show, no matter how famous the people were on the show, they would they would stand out. Were they still at the open mics when you um, started? They were guys who could drop into the open mics and the host of the open mics would put them on because mm-hmm. I think they recognized how, how strong they were and – and um, but they weren't they weren't real open micers. Who was going to the open mic when you went? Um, what do you mean? Oh, no, who, who else? Who was, were open micers? Yeah, who was, um, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to think if there's any left. There was only there's only one guy that I kind of kept in touch with. Um, this guy named uh, Sean Murphy. Okay, but like, um, who else was going to the open mics? Guys started a little bit after me, John Fish and Lamont Price and um, who else did I meet doing the open mics? Um, Joe List later on. But right. uh, but by the time those guys came around, I'd already been doing it four or five years. So, yeah. You know. What was the what was the scene like in the early mid-90s? Um, it was supposedly after the boom. So right. you heard a lot of stories of the guys complaining how they they uh, used to make a lot of money and now there just wasn't that much work and and how we had all missed it and and um, and it had been ruined by television and and things like that. But um, it uh, it seemed a lot easier to start there than say it would be to start in in Boston now or in New York right. uh, back th- back then or now. I mean, now I don't know how anybody starts in New York. It's just with all the bringer shows, it's it's just uh, it's crazy. Well, after after that first open mic, how, how long did it take you to set up other shows um, for yourself? Within a within a month or, or two, I got um, this gig hosting a show above a restaurant every every Saturday night in in Beverly. So I had like a regular regular spot. Was it a Chinese restaurant? No, it was oh. it was a um, it was an Italian restaurant called okay. Ca- Casa de Luca, and it was run by. A uh, comedy show producer named Rob Steen. Okay, yeah. I know that name. I don't still, know that name. He still produces a yeah. lot of shows in New England and is one of the go-to guys for for um, uh, comedy shows. And um, and that was a weekly gig, or yeah, that was a weekly that was a weekly gig. And then off that, I started to get some other one-night stuff, like in the in the bottom of libraries or bookstores or things like that, and in the back of bars and and at bars, literally performing at the bar of this place in, in Peabody one time I remember and then at a bar at lunchtime in this in this other place so I would get like the 20 or 25 dollars but I'd also have to take tickets and and seat people and, and things like that it was um, you're running the house yeah I was running the house and, and that was um but I got to host and I'd do as much time as I I wanted and I'd get a little bit of money and I could um I could you know work on jokes during the thing I it was still well over a year before I really figured out. I'm still doing impressions and everything. It was well over a year before I figured out what I 
what I wanted to do, and then and then actually executing it took much much longer than that. What was the moment when you realized what you wanted to be talking about on stage? Um, when I saw I saw a special by Paul Reiser called Two and a Half Blocks from Home," mm-hmm. and um, he just got on there and and he talked. He didn't do any impressions, and he didn't uh, make a lot of sound effects or 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 do a lot of accents or anything like that. He just got up there and talked, and I was like, "That's that's how I want to I want to do it." I'm not. I don't know that I have the skills to do these other things, and it seems like there's so many other other people doing. Um, such an impressive work physically and and um, vocally that um, that maybe the way I could stand out is by by uh, stripping it down and, and doing something a little closer to to me and um, I think if I if I had thought of it in those terms I'm gonna go up there and be myself I would have been like well nobody's gonna want to want to see that but the 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 mantra became all right I'm not gonna do any voices and I'm not gonna do any impressions and I'm not gonna make any uh, sound effects I'm just gonna go up there and and talk right. and and after a couple of years um, I started to do pretty well with with that was yeah it, where you could talk about Cookies, or <laughs> grapes yeah, versus well, grapefruit. Well, I'd have to, I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to uh, <laughs> say that was that was still four years. Right, down. that was, yeah, that, that, it still took me a while to work up to such uh, <laughs> to such meaningful material as as that. But to have a but to have a distinct point of view on these things. Yeah, I ha- I guess you could say I had a, a point of view. I, I guess my point of view was that um, the 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 other thing I, I thought about Paul Reiser was that he didn't go up there and a lot of the guys in, in Boston back then were just um, a little bit angry and a little bit gruff and, and <laughs> talking about things they hated and people and things they hated and I was like well maybe but Don I'll... Gavin is so lovable too oh he is lovable <laughs> yeah that's the thing he, <laughs> he was curmudgeon. yeah but he was he was different than everybody else I right. mean in his in his style and his delivery and his cadence I mean everything is special about about Don Gavin but what what um what I thought would be would be different from me was that in, instead of denigrating everything, I would try to um, take the point of view that I was that I was for certain things and I was a liker of certain things and and that opened up because it, it, at first it's just trying to be original in in a world that everything's been done right everything's been <laughs> been done I mean and Seinfeld was on the air back then so he he had covered most of most of um, uh, America and and its foibles and and all the the minutia. So it was, it's it's still hard to come up with with original stuff. I mean, that's right? Observational I, comedy is especially with this comedy boom. Yeah, it's there's so many people talking about everything that's happening. Yeah, all at the same time. Although, to be fair and honorable to you, sir, <laughs> Gary Goldman, there have been a number of occasions over the last ten years where I have heard people tell jokes. And then I've gone to them, or I've messaged them, and I go, you know, Gary Goldman has this joke already. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> too bad for them. Well, I guess so, unless unless um, they came up with it first, and I just didn't know they they had it. But um, that, that that thing, I get that all the time on on Twitter and Facebook. So and so is doing something similar to you, and they did this, and it's like there's there's no freaking way they they um, stole it from me. It would be. Um, it would be flattering and everything like that, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't really think that's the, that's the case. And and you know, in, in some cases, they're they're way more uh, well known than me. So if, so if anything, I would get blamed for, 
for taking from them. But I, I usually look at the timeline of when they did the when they did the joke to make sure that I was doing it right. uh, prior to that. Well, I would yeah. I would be seeing them in a bar show in New York, right? And I go, well, I think I saw Gary do that on Conan or on right, Last Comic, right, right. <laughs> so yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but that's uh, that's going to happen, especially if you do observational humor and, yeah. and and there's only so much you can cover, and just about everybody's going to have something about the phone. Or the Fig Newton. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, sometimes I pick things that are deliberately <laughs> out, of, um, out of the ordinary to, yeah. to make sure that nobody's, nobody's talking about that. But, but then you, Nobody else really talks about polio as much as you do. No, I'm obsessed. <laughs> multiple, multiple specials yeah. polio has come yeah, up. Yeah, I'm obsessed with polio. <laughs> <laughs> Is it that you're obsessed with polio or just want to make sure that... That it's recognized that a Jew cured polio. There's a, there's a number of things going on there. One is a Jew cured polio. Two is that um, uh, polio is a is a pretty funny word when it, when, yeah. you, when you think about it. It just it just everything that it's just the right amount of time has passed. There's tragedy plus time, so there's the right amount of time has passed, so you can make fun of polio and, and whooping cough. Hopefully for for a long time. You say to, you you keep the W silent. <laughs> Hooping, hooping, hooping cough. Um, but I, uh, yeah, the, the whole thing with whooping cough was they weren't sure how to pronounce it, so they they had a hard time curing. It's hard to cure what you can't pronounce. So right. I, um, yeah. So, uh, Everybody talks about Zika now, but who's really right delving into polio? Right, polio Gary was, Goldman. Yeah, polio is my man. Yeah. But you know, when you talk about originality, it um, strikes me just now thinking about it that you were when you started comedy, you were an accountant. Yeah. Which there's not a lot of originality in accounting either. No, no. It's a lot of columns and, and addition. But um, How did you balance that at first? Uh, poorly. <laughs> poorly. I, I didn't, you know, I, I, uh, I would be late for work or, you know, call out of work because I was Was your job up. in the city or in the suburbs? It was in the city. Okay. Yeah, mostly in the city. Sometimes I'd have to go to clients that were, that were outside the city. And that sometimes was um, even worse because there was more more travel and more traffic. But I, um, yeah, somehow was able to do accounting for a couple of years, and um, then I then I started to make a a little bit of money doing comedy. So that with with combined with some odd jobs, I was able to I was able to keep my head barely above water for about five or six years. Were you showing up to to early gigs in a suit from um, your, from your accounting job? But, if I ever did, it was it was rare. I think I would have changed because I didn't want to be um, tied to a tied to a suit. That's a that's a lot of preparation and a lot of dedication to to show up every every week at in a, every show in a suit. I, re- I really admire those guys. Those guys are more organized than me. I used to wear a bow tie at my newspaper jobs when I was in my twenties. And I on, called you the kid on my first. Couple, I felt like it was a throwback to old. Yeah, school yeah, 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 of course. But at my first couple stand-up gigs, I still wore the. Oxford shirt and khakis and a bow tie. Yeah. And the guy who ran the Comedy Underground in Seattle just looked at me when I got off stage. What, what are you doing? Oh, really? That's not. Oh. And it especially doesn't match with what's coming out of your mouth. Okay. Yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> but you know, I don't. I don't feel like everything. Anything is matched with what. What's com- My look has ever matched with what's coming out of my. Coming out of my mouth. I don't look like somebody who's going to talk about um, getting into a uh, argument at Trader Joe's over. Over cutting in line with a with a, uh, with a middle-aged woman, I don't. I, I never. I never but, thought that my my look was very efficient. For oh, we know what we're going to get with this, with this guy. But the so. fact that you can 
build that out into a 20 or I've even seen you do it like a half hour yeah. version of that story is remarkable. Um, it's a, it's a little bit of a trick, but uh, th- <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, comedy is magic. Yeah, in some cases. Yeah. So uh, is, is one of the dates that you remember the date that you quit the accounting job? Um, no. The, the day that I remember is the last time I worked a, a day job, which was de- December 24th, 1998. It was Christmas Eve of 1998 that I stopped working. Um, my day job was I was a, a high school substitute teacher at the high school I went to. So that was... And um, they had you work on Christmas Eve? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a half day, but that was my, that was my <laughs> last crazy. day. Yeah. Yeah. They must've had a lot of snowstorms that year or mm. anticipated a lot. Right. Yeah. What did you, did you give notice? Did you, um, no, I, I or as a sub, I, you just I probably, you just stop answering the phone. As a no, sub, I probably, right? I probably told them because I was close to the, the people that I worked there and said that I was going to be, um, on the road or whatever I was whatever I was planning on doing, but that was the last time I had to work um, full-time day job. Although being a substitute teacher is probably a great job for an aspiring yeah. stand-up comedian because you have a captive audience yep. who's not treating you like a teacher. They're treating you like entertain us anyhow. Right, right. yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't thought about the fact that they probably wanted some entertainment or just to be just to be left alone, but right. I, I, I did with the with this with the classes that were um, open to it. I would I would run some uh, some bits by them. And it was it was fun. <laughs> they liked it. What, what well, what grades were you? Um, <laughs> were you? It was, it was grade nine through grade twelve. Okay. Yeah. So they were they were pretty. So sharp, they can get TV. Kids. They can get TV friendly late night. Sets. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. They're staying up to watch Letterman anyhow, so. Yeah, they were, yeah, they were, I don't know that they were into that back then, but they were, South Park was big back then, so. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that was the, that was the year that South Park broke. What was going on in your life or comedy career that you felt that Christmas Eve you could close the books on? <laughs> um, I got a manager. Okay. I got a manager, which, um, if I was telling somebody now, I would say, oh, you got a manager, don't. That doesn't mean you should quit your day job, but, but right? I did your this... manager tell you quit the day? <laughs> no, she she didn't. But I was so um... wait. Was that Maureen? Yeah, it was Maureen. Okay, that was my first manager, Maureen Taran, who now works at True TV. So I um... get those pitches ready. <laughs> so I uh... yeah I um... so you you signed with Maureen. I signed with Maureen, and we made a plan to get into the Montreal Comedy Festival. That was the whole thing, and and. Um, I guess I had enough road gigs to last me through the through the summer and a credit card, and so I I figured I had enough money to to um, and I was doing enough local work um, in in Boston, and there were enough clubs where I could make a little bit of money. But I was also living at home, so it's, it's just um, I didn't I didn't have to um, pay rent or anything like that. So it, it was it was most people wouldn't have been able to quit their day job until. I wouldn't have been able to quit until that um, that summer. So your family must have been very supportive then for uh, you to be still. Yeah, my mother was very, living at home, substitute teaching, and yeah, going. My to mother the was clubs. supportive. I don't I don't know how um, how optimistic she was about my comedy career, but she did support what I was what I was doing, and I was um, you know I was a twenty something struggling to figure out what he wanted to do, and and but but this is but I did know what I wanted to do. I just was having a hard time. Um, you know the record is it requisite is that you make a making a living at this thing that you right. um that you want to do and that 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 was difficult 
Well, you say you were working the road. Were you working the road nationally or mostly just New England? New Northeast? England. Yeah. Every once in a while, I think that I would get a gig um, outside of New England, but but mostly it was New England, and, and I wasn't getting anything um, very well paying. I think the most I got at that point was I did I did a college and I got eight hundred dollars, but that was like I could not believe they were paying that much to a comedian. <laughs> I could not I could not believe that eight hundred that there were pa- packets of eight hundred dollars lying around all over the country for comedians to come pick up. Yes, could not believe it. I would, in fact, there's a lot more than that. It's crazy, but $800 sticks in my mind as being like, that is that is outrageous. Imagine if you were able to make that every week. Yes. Imagine that. So was that the plan that Maureen had for you between December and July? No, there wasn't. There was no plan except I... I just get into Montreal. Just get into Montreal, yeah. In fact, don't, don't try not to let anybody see you until the Montreal New Faces. So how did you – but you pulled that off. Yeah, by hiding out in Boston. It was perfect. It was perfect. Nobody had, nobody had seen me. Nobody had heard of me. I hadn't made any television appearances, and it was just uh, – I was a true new face. But how did you get Montreal's attention? Oh, that's, that's true. I had to – Right, <laughs> you had to get Montreal. I had to audition for Montreal on um, – I think on one – just once. Okay. Yeah, and sent a tape. Sent a tape and, and, and got a, um, an audition – it wasn't a it wasn't a callback because I don't think I had auditioned prior to that, but it was a it was based on a tape and they saw me live at the comic strip in New York. Okay. So you came and down that, to New York for that. Yeah, and that was like in October of ninety nine. So you get Montreal, you're a new face. Yeah. What was now I've heard all sorts of stories. I've only started going to Montreal in two thousand seven. Okay. But even back then, I was being told, oh, you missed it. You should have been here at the end yeah, of the 90s. You should yeah. have been here in 99. Yeah. You were I, there in 99. I was there in 99, and I walked away with, um, within six months of doing Montreal, I did a Leno, a Letterman, and I had a, a quarter of a million dollar development deal with, with Fox and and um, 20th Century Fox. So it completely changed my life. And um, and I had probably a half hour of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but they I've gave never, you, but I've never mentioned how ill-equipped I was to, to be given so much in that in that time. And could I have could I have headlined? Um, yeah, I'm sure I could have put together 45 minutes, but mm-hmm. it would have been, and everybody would have been like, "This guy is good for a half hour," you know. But when you but when you do new phases, and then you meet with all these casting people and executives in the hotel lounge. Uh-huh. They just—they're just looking for buzz, right? They're looking for somebody who yeah, who so, has potential. Buzz, but also, um, I was t- tremendously uh, charming and adorable. I really—I <laughs> I mean, I was so naive and and um, now you're mature and, and weathered in, and innocent and just uh, really a, a sweet kid. I know mm-hmm. that. I think they they did something recently in the New York Times about the nice guys and. In comedy. Oh yeah, they and did. I, yeah, I feel, they I feel did like a column. I had, yeah, I, I feel I had that that going on back then. I was I was really um, at the very least, you would say there goes a really sweet guy, and I don't I don't think I'm any any less sweet. I just I just don't know that it that it plays so well coming out of a 45 year old man. So I <laughs> tamped it tamped it down <laughs> tamped it down over the years. I, I mean, I'm I'm still rather uh, uh, credulous and gullible, but. Um, which are two words for the same thing, but I wanted to show my range of 
Uh, I, I like to use big sentence. words like highfalutin, Ooh. which is a big word, yeah. which means big word. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which yeah, is my yeah, favorite. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit verbose. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so you're a nice guy who has all sorts of buzz, and you're tall, and you're fresh-faced. Yep. So 20th Century Fox gives you a quarter million dollars, and that's probably why you went to Los Angeles instead of New York. Yeah, yeah. I went to I moved to Los Angeles to work on the the pilot. And then, um, were there any other Boston comics out there when you went? Um, I think Dwayne Perkins moved out there soon after, and I spent a lot of time with with Dane Cook, who was out there, and Dan Smith, and um, Wayne Previty was out there, and I'm trying to think if there were any other. Paul D'Angelo was out there, so I, uh, Chris McGuire. There were there were actually a lot of Boston guys okay. out there who I who I connected with. Because I figure you know you probably were looking for some sort of support network. Yeah, moving out there. Yeah, with all this money, but only a half hour of jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was the hard part is is building on that half hour of jokes because there just wasn't a lot of stage time in, in Los Angeles at the time. I don't know what the situation is now, even for somebody with the, my experience. But does does the heat of a development deal get you stage time? No, it just gets you uh, resentment. And <laughs> gets you a lot of resentment, and um, yeah, because there was. There was one year I lived in L.A. where I did more spots at the Laugh Factory. I mean, at at the Tonight Show than I did at the Laugh Factory. Oh wow! I did two Tonight Shows in one year and <laughs> and one Laugh Factory spot. Hmm. Yeah, it was hard to get it. You were not it was hard to get in there. Jamie Masada was not a f- fan. He might have been a fan, but like the the party he was able to put together had people dropping in, like you know Tim Allen and mm-hmm. and um, Norm Macdonald and Adam Sandler and just people of uh, who were a lot more. A lot more accomplished than I was. And the improv and the comedy store weren't the, more hospitable? The improv was a little bit more hospitable, um, but still not a lot of shows. And the, the comedy store was um, was considered kind of a rogue a rogue town. It, it, it was being run by the by the comedians and, and it was uh, it was considered pretty pretty shabby and kind of a hell a hell room um, when I was living there. But now I heard it's awesome. Yeah, now now that's the hot Place. Yeah, yeah, which is really good to hear. It seems like that stuff goes in phases, especially when you have three clubs like that. Yeah, yeah. Where one is the hot right. club that you want to be at, or everybody wants to be at. Right. So by 2004, when you decide to do Last Comic, yeah, was that was that a, a desperation move, or was that a uh, um, <laughs> a calculated decision? I don't think it was a it was a desperation it, move, but it was the second season, and I had seen what the first season had done for the participants from from that mm-hmm. from that season. So I was like, um, "Who who wouldn't want to be a part of this? This is a great way to um, to um, put your career on a on a faster track." And and there was just there weren't didn't seem to be many other outlets to get to get well known. Um, you know, I'd done the Tonight Show, I'd done Letterman, I'd done. Um, the other the other late night shows and um, had not got, gotten a following and it was just like unless you were on a on a sitcom back then you really didn't it was really hard to to have a following as as just a stand up right so this was this opportunity that came out um, in two thousand four and it and it was um, a sitcom or a reality show because I remember like Joe Rogan was getting huge crowds because he was hosting Fear Factor. Yeah, that was. I mean, but he was also he had also been on news radio. I mean, right. he he was a pretty well known guy and a, and a great comic um, out, outside of television. But but I mean, in terms of drawing, yeah, a crowd, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean that that's something that's I still I remember when I was in Arizona, like the people who were the draws were people who yeah. had T V credits. Yeah. And it you know, and it's it's still that way and and um the the thing with the with the um with the last comic standing was a li- it was it was um it was kinda like crack. I mean it it, it uh it burned super hot and and everything like that for yeah. for a couple months after I was on the show and I was selling out everywhere I went and then it then it evaporated so it was yeah I mean well you also were in that crazy year where they decided to do a third season yeah. right on top of the yeah. second season and have the third season be the the people from seasons one and two yeah yeah it was thrown together last minute and it ultimately was uh, failed <laughs> they they didn't even show the but, finale but I mean I got to see that firsthand TV. because. When I met you in Arizona, you and Alonzo and Jay Larson. Jay, no, oh, Jay, Jay, Jay London. Jay, Jay London, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Jay Larson's another guy. Jay Larson knows another guy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, you three were came to Arizona like in between tapings Yeah. to do a weekend. And, and it was packed. Yeah. And the crowds went wild. Crazy. It was yeah. like you could tell they were watching the show. Yeah. And then, you know, I was I was lulled into a false sense of security because I was like, well, this, how is this ever going to end? And it, and it was over within six months. Hmm. It was it was it was surprising. How, how did you, how did you decide what to do next? Um, I don't know. The, the the thing just became to continue to do um, what I enjoyed doing, which was to do live dates and do stand up and and, you know, some years have been easier than others and and I I feel like I'm on a pretty good run the past the past few years um based on perhaps on my last Netflix special and this and this current one I I got some fans and I get a lot of plays on serious radio and and um just as indicated by my by the royalties I receive every month from the, from serious radio and and some of the other um platforms for for audio content and so, um, what what other platforms do you get royalty checks from? Uh, there's a thing called iHeartRadio, mm-hmm. and then there's Spotify, and there's Pandora. So, the every month they send me a breakdown of where the what what jokes get played and, and how often and where, and yeah, it's it's interesting. What what surprises you the most out of those out of those uh, reports that you get? Um, that nobody is really listening to anything I've done since 2000. <laughs> no. It's all the classics. No, I'm exaggerating, but but most of the most of the plays are mm-hmm. for um, like the disc man joke and mm. and the cookie routine, which are ten years old. Mm. Ten years old. And when I saw you the other night, you were working on some brand new stuff, yeah. and then after that, you folded back in the the disc man joke. Yeah, I mixed in just to uh, just, to, just to fill the time. Swage, yeah. swage the crowd. Yeah, a, l- a little bit. It's like the the crowd needs to have something that's been proven before to work. And, yeah, but um, okay. So, but that's but that's also kind of a measure of kind of how timeless your comedy is. That that it's not like it's not. Is it a measure of how timeless the comedy is, or how um, uh, unwilling people are to um, to expand their <laughs> their um, their taste in, in jokes because the, the the that stuff is really so simple, mm-hmm. so simple. And I feel like the the later jokes I do are a little bit more 
intricate and longer. And I mean, that also might be part of it is, right. is that the they length, can't, the they length can't, of a track. Yeah. They can't play a 15 minute track. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's part of it. But, mm. um, yeah, I, I always, I always fantasize that, that, um, they'll, um, there'll be some sort of reward for the, for the longest track or something, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I feel like this is the longest joke. Well, sometimes when I it. sometimes when I get a CD or watch a special on Netflix or Showtime or HBO or Comedy Central or wherever, there's so much of it that's just so in the moment about the moment that I wonder. Like, it's it's great that it's getting out there now, but a year from now, will, will you want to go back and yeah. see what somebody had to say about the 2012 election? Oh, I know, I know. I I think about that a lot because it's. Well, I want to hear your Romney jokes. <sighs> Not that long ago, and yet might as well be 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Whereas, you know, you can talk about polio. You can talk about polio and, and, until it's... Um, until, until it comes back. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to stop. Right. Um, what, is, what has been some... some? I know you've worked with a lot of peer, peers who are great, uh, people coming up who are great. Who's been who's given you some really great advice about navigating the world and comedy? I don't know. I I, I mean I Or I, do you I, do you read stuff that that gives you Yeah, I read a, I read a lot of things and and you know just um there are, there are a couple of schools like Jerry Seinfeld would say write everything down and perform it that way. Do the best version of of the way you've done it and it's worked. And I remember Gary Shandling saying he likes to play with a little bit more. So I sort of, uh, combined that into, into, um, a style of, of writing jokes. And, and I know that, that, um, Brian Regan, although it was part of it, he was on a, um, interview and I, and they asked some other comedians to ask him questions. And I asked him about how he works in new material. Cause he's doing the similar thing to me now in that he, um, Works out new stuff while he's while he's on tour. Yeah, you know. And, well, you got to work it out somewhere. Yeah, because he doesn't do the. Yeah, because Brian Regan doesn't do it. clubs. Yeah, he's so. not stopping in the clubs, <laughs> work it out. So he does it on on tour. At so, least you have the cellar and the stand and yeah, places you can go to. Yeah, but th- that's even that's even difficult because um, you know you really you only have fifteen minutes at the at the cellar and you want everybody on on the show is so great and so if you do something that's in par <laughs> it's just going to stick out and you're yeah. going to lose confidence in it so. Um, I try to try to work out the stuff um, on the road at the shows, and um, and that was good advice from from Brian. And the and the other thing is, and and I, you know, I was wondering because you're an expert in, in modern stand up comedy. It's just um, oh, thank you. What the what the audiences expect? Who like for instance, I'm going on tour, uh, which is to say, I'm going out and doing shows. It's not really there's no there's no bus there's no. <laughs> There's no tour manager. There are no roadies, but I, I have a string of dates. Um, There's no tour-specific merch? Right, right. I have a string of dates over the next few months, and um, the, 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 um, for the calendar year 2016, mm-hmm. and I'm going under the assumption that they've all seen the special, and so I'm trying to do um, an hour that wasn't on the special, and then... Um, and I, I remember talking to Brian Regan about this one time, and he said um, the audience is usually cool if you have 20 minutes or a new half half hour. 
But I asked him that like ten years ago. I wonder if it's I wonder if it's a new thing. I mean, I'm I'm trying to come up with with um, a plan for 2017, mm-hmm. and I think that I'm going to um, skip some of the places that I went last year um, because I would only have 15 or 20 new minutes for them, and I'd rather wait till it's been two years and. Um, you know, I'm going to make less less money, but I feel like at least I won't be defrauding a certain number of certain number of audiences. So I mean, I mean, as a as a comedy fan and as a as a former comedian and, and as somebody who knows the the lay of the land and has seen a lot of these headliners, what, what's your what's your opinion on on how much new stuff there has to be when you go back out on tour, especially after a after a special? It feels, you know, it's it's funny that you ask me that because I feel like there's been such a, such a sea change. And what the audience expects now from, I mean, 10 years ago, clubs would bring in a headliner twice a year and the headliner would do the same yeah. exact, the same yeah. exact 45 was minutes the, to an the, hour. The Anthony Clark formula. <laughs> or, do you remember uh, him? Yeah, Anthony yeah. Clark, Boston Common. Yeah, he would he would come to Boston at least twice a year mm-hmm. and, he, and he would do the same show each time and people would um, sell him, he would sell out every single time. Yeah. But now, now it's the crowds. I think because of YouTube and Netflix, and people can just consume so much more that yeah. that the novelty wears off quicker. Right. Um, I remember. I remember hearing from a couple of uh, your Boston buddies, like uh, Billy Burr and Louis mm-hmm. C.K., telling me things like uh, they would start their they would start they would take their closer. From their special and make it the opener. Okay. For the new hour. Yeah. You go. Okay, I have to build from. Now wow. I have to build from the from the closer. I'd, I'd heard something like that, and I didn't. I didn't really understand because I had never done what I'm what I'm doing now, which is the the last time the the special I did. I already had plenty of time because mm-hmm. it took so long to get to get to everybody, um, and you know when I. Unfortunately, when it plays on Comedy Central, that's when the fewest people see it. It's, right. it's when it got to Netflix that a lot of people saw it. So because then it's, it's uh, like you say in a, in a previous thing, you can you can demand it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on demand, and then yeah. you can, yeah. demand, you can demand just demand it. You can just demand it. Yeah. And so, um, but this time around, I'm coming off a special that um, you know I d- I've done one show since the special came out, and it's like they the people were requesting things from the special, so it's like they're not they're not um, right. Well, the, the the truth the truth is though that even if you do something that's from a special that you that you recorded last year, that bit has probably evolved. Yeah, a little bit. Or you have different you have different versions. Yeah. You have longer versions. Sure. Stuff that you that you took out. Yeah. For time or space. Yeah, I just um, I, I mean, other than taking a, a, a um, survey after the show, it's hard to figure out what the people want because some people are like i wish you had done this why didn't you do this and then other people like that you did that one last time i think they're in the minority but it is um it is a concern the thing about comedy though is is that makes it different is people don't know what they want until you tell them yeah yeah i guess so i mean it's all (laughs) but when when louis and bill talk about um opening with their closer are they opening with their closer on tour dates or are they opening with their closer on just See, because those guys can just say, "I'm going to be working out at the, mm-hmm. you know, at this place and, and that place for a, for a little while," and um, 
Bill used to have a formula. I don't know if he still does. I haven't asked him in a while. But Bill used to have a formula that he told me where, like, he, he really spaced out, like, the the second – he started with the second best joke, closed with the best, and it just kind of alternated yeah. back and forth. And then in the middle was the softest. Yeah. The middle is the softest stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, you start, you start with stuff that you know is going to kill, and you end with stuff that you – the best stuff. Right. And then the audience will have – will be able to go with you through the middle. Yeah. Yeah, it's confusing. But what do I know? No, you know plenty. <laughs> you know plenty. Can name all the all the formulas. Mm, all the formulas. <laughs> well, the... what 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 advice? You know, I always ask people this to to close out. What what advice would you give somebody who who has no clue what they're doing but wants desperately to get into comedy? Uh well, there there has to be um, some. Um, you know, if you ever watch the the movie The King of Comedy with Robert De Niro, it's like he's the most delusional uh, person on the on the planet as as far as he's never appeared on a comedy stage and yet he wants to be the the guest host of the Tonight Show, and um, and I feel just as deluded as as him. Even at, even after what I've I've done, I'm like some of the some of the things that you want to you want to do are like um, are stretches. So you just have to go into it, um, I guess, with with a healthy level of of delusion. Don't don't think you're going to do it next week, but you have to have that that ambition to try and to try and be different and do something interesting and and if not great. And um, I always tell the people to write like you've only got six months to make it <laughs> and get on, get on stage every night if you can but but those are the those are the two things writing and and getting on stage and not everybody not everybody writes that's not their style so i can i can tell you how to be more like me but um i think writing is not is an important or at least keeping track of your funny thoughts or your or the things that you want to talk about or the things that excite you you may not write word for word i you know a lot of guys will write it word for word word right down to Little asides and, you know, folks, <laughs> down folks and things like that. And it's just like you're going to memorize, memorize all that. It's going to sound so, so canned. But, um, yeah, if you keep a notebook handy or your phone and keep ideas on there, then you'll, you'll always have something to work on. And then just uh, be original and you, can, and you can stand out, which nowadays being original is, is, um, is probably the toughest toughest part if you can if you can stand out in a, in a group this crowded then then you're doing something something special well gary you definitely stand out <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> thank you and i will i will gladly uh, enable any further delusions you may have oh, because i thoroughly enjoy you oh thanks john and, appreciate and, it and thanks for doing this i've, I've enjoyed your uh, appreciate your encouragement and um <laughs> friendship over the years so oh. thank you thanks for having me on i'm glad we finally got this worked out me too this episode of the comics comic presents last things first was produced by alex brazell at showbiz studios the music by camille harris and shockwave logo by giggle chick please check out my website thecomicscomic.com for more interviews reviews and comedy news become a paid subscriber at patreon.com I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening.
last things first. 